episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. My name is Shadi Nabhan, and I host this podcast. I have done so for the past several weeks. I previously hosted the Outspoken Oncology podcast. So hopefully you are a long-term listener, and if you're not and you're just tuning in, I hope to earn your trust to become a loyal listener to this podcast. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today, we are going to tackle a rather tough topic. Well, I don't know if it's tough or not tough, but it's a controversial topic. But there's a lot of discussion about this topic in the lay media, the press, also on social media, and certainly in the medical sphere, conflict of interest. I wanted to figure out how to do an introduction to this topic, so I thought, let me put conflict of interest in a Google search engine and see what I get. And it took me to a Wikipedia where the conflict of interest is defined as follows. Conflict of interest is a situation which a person or organization is involved in multiple interests, financial or otherwise, and serving one interest could involve working against another. Typically, this relates to situations in which the personal interest of an individual or organization might adversely affect a duty owed to make decisions for the benefit of a third party. So we're going to discuss this in medicine because there's a lot of thoughts there are many thoughts and many suggestions that a physician or many physicians will really conduct their behavior and treatments and what they really how they care for patients in a conflicted manner because of relationships with pharmaceutical companies and with industry and and whether some of this is really hyped or not is really um, up to you to decide because certainly there are there are some research studies to support that the conflict of interest does exist and could have a detrimental effect on patient care but much of that research could be refuted when you really look at the methods that were done as well as the details of the actual uh, studies so, you know, there are always two views on that, um, but I really wanted to discuss this topic with Dr. Vincent Raj Kumar, who has published on the uh, issue, who has actually lectured on the issue, and I thought he would be an absolutely excellent guest to dissect the complexity of conflict of interest for all of you, our loyal recent listeners. Dr. Vincent Rajkumar is part to none. Everybody knows Vincent. He is a professor of medicine and a consultant in the Division of Hematology in the Department of Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. He also has a joint appointment as a consultant in the Division of Hematopathology in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology. And his expertise in myeloma, in the cost of care, in immunology just uh, all of these expertise are superb but we're not going to talk about medicine or myeloma we're going to talk specifically about conflict of interest so i hope you enjoy the episode that i taped with dr vincent rajkumar and i really would like to hear from you and if you can let me know how well we are doing 
And before I air the episode, I would direct you to iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, pretty much any podcast outlet that you usually utilize, and ask you to subscribe, rate, and review the show, and let us know how we are doing. Without further ado, the one and only Vincent Rajkumar, exclusively on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, it is truly my pleasure to host and interview Dr. Vincent Rajkumar from the Mayo Clinic today. Dr. Rajkumar is a professor of hematology of medicine at the Mayo Clinic and a world-renowned leader in multiple myeloma. And I've just confessed to him that he is one of my virtual mentors, but this does not mean that he is older than me. It just means that I respect and value his views uh, despite the fact that we have not had the opportunity to work together in the same institution. So Vincent, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. You have no idea how grateful I am and how happy I am to have you because again, you're one of my heroes to interview. One of my heroes is always a treat for me. For the few people who just don't know you, maybe just a little bit about you in terms of what you do at Mayo Clinic and how you spend your time and and how did you end up um, at Mayo doing myeloma? Was it um, by chance, uh, a mentor that influenced you? Just take us through how you ended up here. Well, thanks so much, Harry, for having me. I came to the U.S. in 92. I did my residency at the University of North Dakota in Fargo at a time where people didn't know Fargo was actually in the U.S. Then I moved to Mayo for my hematology fellowship. And I have been at Mayo since then, from 95 till now. So it's been a long time. When I moved to the U.S., it was with the singular goal of becoming a hematologist. I had already known, even before doing my residency, that's what I wanted to do with my life. And Mayo was a great place to do hematology and oncology because it was a very strong clinical program. Uh, it was a four-year program that allowed me time for both uh, becoming a good clinician as well as doing research. When I came to Mayo, I knew I wanted to do hematology, but not so much about multiple myeloma. But with Dr. Kyle, Dr. Greip, Dr. Gertz, uh, great people in the myeloma field, I just naturally got influenced to follow in their footsteps. They were great mentors and... Um, I joined the myeloma group here in 1999, and in about 10 years, I was the leader of the group. So it, it, it was a very rapid uh, rise as far as my academic career goes. And that basically paralleled the arrival of thalidomide. I was one of the first to confirm the findings of the Arkansas group that thalidomide was effective in myeloma. And then I participated in the first botezomib study and then subsequently the first lenalidomide, pomalidomide studies as well. And then so the, the, my carrier track basically was running in parallel with the arrival of new drugs in myeloma. Had I gone into, say, the brain tumor field, which was the alternate <laughs> universe that I was trying to get into, uh, then my track would have been totally different, I guess. And Vincent, do you, how much of your time is lab versus clinical versus um, how do you spend your time? So I was very fortunate. Uh, you know, when I joined, the field was taking off. I was involved with all aspects of research in myeloma, even from the get-go. 
So I was very much involved with the epidemiologic studies, looking at racial disparity, looking at biomarkers, looking at prognostic features, uh, the natural history of MGUS smoldering. I was involved with laboratory studies, initially with angiogenesis, later on with new drugs and biomarkers, and then also with clinical trials. I've led a number of different clinical trials, phase one, two, three. Doing that from the very get-go meant that I was able to secure enough funding to protect my time. So I have been about 75% research and 25% clinical from the, from the start of my career. And the research is translational. Is that a fair description? Well, the research, as I mentioned, is epidemiologic, right. biomarkers and laboratory, as well as clinical trials. So I've actually done all three. Done all of them. It will be impossible for me, as I introduce you, to list all of the awards that you have won in your career. But I'm going to try to challenge you by telling me what's your two most favorite awards that are closer to your heart than others. I'm sure others won't, uh, won't be upset. But there's always this one award that just means a little bit more to you than another. Give me two of them that you love the most. Well, the two that I would say that I... I mean, it's like choosing between... Various Vincent, mistakes. it would be much easier if you had only one, two. It would be just those two. See, I'm trying to brag about you, but you're just being too humble. So one would be the Robert A. Kyle Award for Lifetime Achievement in Myeloma Research, which was given at, uh, in Copenhagen by the IMF and the International Myeloma Working Group. And that's very special because it carries the name of my primary mentor, Dr. Kyle. He's 91, but he still comes to work every day. He has supported me very much in my, in my career and uh, allowed me to succeed like I could have not even imagined my wildest dreams. So that would have to be the first. And the second would be, I think, the Giants of Cancer Care Award that was given by Onclive uh, last year in Chicago. That's a recognition by peers who are outside of Mayo, outside of the myeloma field even, uh, recognizing you as a leader and, and calling you a giant when I'm like, you know, only halfway through my career. So uh, that's special. But even more, what made it more special was that I received the award from Dr. Kanti Rai, who's oh, yeah. been another great mentor for me. And uh, he's always been loving and kind and generous with his time towards me. Being the second Indian to receive this award, and that too from Dr. Rai's hand, who was the first to get it, was like ultra special. What wonderful. Thank you for sharing this. And uh, Dr. Rai is just an amazing man, uh, of course. So me and you are going to chat a little bit about something that is not really heavy on medical stuff, but more, I don't know if we should classify it in the policy world. Maybe, maybe it's on policy because we're going to talk about conflict of interest. And before we delve into it a little bit, what made a myeloma specialist who is doing clinical trials, lab work, translational work, and, and, and lecturing and putting guidelines and so forth become interested in policy and um, do you, do you, how do you do this? How did, how did you become interested in that area? Very good question. The two areas of policy that I'm interested in is uh, uh, healthcare costs. And that I became aware of because I was involved with all these clinical trials. I knew how these drugs were being developed. And I could see that the price of these drugs was too high. And I can also see the trajectory of the price increases. So that made me like, you know, 
kind of uneasy that these drugs were getting to become too expensive for the population and for the public at large. So that's one area of policy that I, I just got somewhat naturally hooked into. The other area is the conflict of interest policies. And, and you know, I have my own unique perspective, which might be different than what the journals do or what ASCO or ASH does. And I just, I, I think it'd be uh, cool to discuss this with you um, because you and I talked about this in the past. And this is an area that I feel is very important because I can see as I worked in my career that I had this unique perspective, like, hey, I could say something like, this is the standard of care. And tomorrow there will be a huge number of people just following what I said. Because you are influential in that field. Because you're influential. You could write a single article in the New England Journal of Medicine. You could write a guideline. You could give a lecture and say, this is my standard of care. And you could literally make a huge number of physicians follow that guideline. So when you have that kind of influence, you start inspecting yourself and saying, like, do you have conflicts of interest? Could you, could you be making this recommendation because of certain amount of money that you're getting from a company or, or maybe a non-financial conflict. Uh, so it starts making you very aware that when you, whenever you make a, a recommendation, are you free of conflict? And if you are conflicted, are you disclosing it appropriately? Those are the two big issues, right? And that it made me just become very, very careful. And, and then I would see that there were recommendations not just in myeloma but in but in other fields of oncology where you could see that you know there might be conflicts at play and um, and how i i could sense that conflicts could determine what the recommendation was going to be so it just got me naturally involved it's almost like i wouldn't say parallel with the healthcare costs but it's an issue that i've been very much acutely aware of. Uh, one of the reasons also is because of UpToDate. I write literally all of the myeloma topics in UpToDate. And I quickly recognize that 60% of people get their information from UpToDate. That's more than all the lectures, guidelines, editorials, magazine articles combined. So if you are conflicted and you're an author in UpToDate, you could make people do things which is for a reason that is different than, than the true medical reason. So I, I, I just had a very self-introspective view of like, you know, you have to be free of conflict, of the types of conflict you shouldn't have, and also manage the conflicts when they arise. So let's talk about those two things, the type of conflict when they arise and how you disclose it. Because you, you brought up a very important point when you are influential and a leader in the field and you write these guidelines or, you know, even when uh, a community oncologist calls you and says, hey, Dr. Rajkumar, I have this patient, what would you do? All of these things. How can we define it in a way to assure that your medical advice is not influenced by relationships that you have had with manufacturers or non-manufacturers? That's the first question, right? To, to assure that your medical advice is not influenced. Because there are some, you know, I mean, I can see it both ways. Let me frame it this way. 
people will always say manufacturers are spending billions of dollars on marketing and on all of these things. And they wouldn't spend that much money unless they are seeing return on investment. I can also see physicians saying, you know, just because you took me to lunch or you got pizza for me in the office, I'm not going to, you know, I'm always going to write what I think is medically appropriate. So I can see both sides and I help us understand how do we, how do we dissect this issue? This is, uh, you know, uh, as we've talked before, this, this is a complicated issue. And let me just say at least three or four basic points up front. Number one, one of the problems with conflict of interest is not that the conflict is actually going to make you make a bad recommendation. You may have a conflict, but you're still true to yourself and making the right recommendation. The problem with conflict of interest is you can assure that about your own self, but for the person who's receiving the information, they're going to come into contact with hundreds of doctors making recommendations. If you're a doctor listening, sitting in a CME meeting, you're going to hear from many, many doctors who are speaking. You're going to listen to uh, a number of lectures. You're going to read a number of articles. And the problem with conflicts of interest is you never know who is conflicted and who is not conflicted. There is no way to decide that. And this is the problem with conflict of interest. No one is accusing somebody of being conflicted. It's just that when people have conflicts, it's difficult for the user, whether it's a patient or another physician getting a lecture from you, to discern which physician is conflicted and which physician is not conflicted. Rather than being an accusatory thing, it's just that it should be recognized that it's impossible to distinguish that. And that makes it difficult. And that's why people say, disclose it. Let the person who's using the information make that determination. That's actually an interesting point you bring up that just because you have conflict, it doesn't mean you're going to give wrong recommendation. I mean, you no. can, right? Because oftentimes the challenge from physicians are, you know, I mean, you stop accusing me that I'm going to make recommendations based on the pizza, slice of pizza I had over lunch, I'm still going to make the correct recommendation. Correct. And so it's not, it's not uh, the conflict of interest is not that telling someone that they did something wrong or telling something that someone that they're going to make a recommendation that's not the correct medical recommendation. It's just that disclose it because no one can differentiate between a doctor who is conflicted and who's not conflicted. The second point that I want to make is that there's conflicts of interest that certainly drive the concern whether the physician is making the right recommendation for the patient, the patient in front of you. Are you recommending a certain treatment because you're working with that particular company with some financial relationship? whether it's a pizza or a big grant or whatever. And that's one thing. To me, that, that, I think that happens on a much smaller scale and is much less of a concern than when you have an expert, say like me, making a recommendation like, let's say I make a decision that lenalidomide maintenance is the standard of care. Everybody with myeloma should get len maintenance. That one recommendation is billions of dollars. Of course. 
tomorrow if we say everybody should get daratumumab for frontline therapy, that's billions of dollars. If I say everybody should get lenalidomide and daratumumab, I mean, we just double the money and it's billions of dollars. And it may or may not be the right thing. So what I'm trying to say is that there's one level of conflict where is the physician making the right recommendation for their patient? That's a certain connotation. I, but I think that that is a lower problem because most physicians are indeed very much dedicated to their patients and they were not going to be swayed by small amounts of money they get from pharmaceutical companies. But the second level is where there is an expert who can make a profound recommendation that's literally billions in revenue for the company where you want to be sure that that expert is not conflicted because the, the, the one recommendation can be having a massive impact down the road. So that's the second point, which is that there's a distinction between conflicts of interest that guides practice for an individual physician versus conflicts of interest that drive the practice of many physicians because of the expert who made, it, made that recommendation. So they distinguish that. The third point I want to make is that what are the conflicts that we are talking about? Because, you know, disclosing the conflict and making sure that all the conflicts are disclosed means you could go down the path where you collect data on all the physicians and, and then everyone looks like they're conflicted because it's impossible to be a researcher without having done a trial. So then the only people without conflict will be people who never done any research, never done anything, and never interacted with the pharmaceutical company. Maybe they don't even prescribe medicines. Well, they can have a clean slate where they can say no to everything. So it goes down into what are the types of conflicts that are material that we should collect? Because if we collect too much and become too sensitive, sensitive meaning like, you know, highly sensitive and picking up all the information possible, then you will end up making every physician conflicted. Then the user is going to be looking at every physician and saying, oh, he's getting money, he's getting money, he's getting money, and this, everybody's getting money. So then it means no one's conflicted. Um, because if everyone is conflicted, then literally nothing really matters. So we have to be careful in terms of what is a conflict that's reportable, what is a conflict that you should disclose versus what, is, what are conflicts which are really not conflicts in the first place. But, but there are some papers, Vincent, that have said, I mean, and I apologize, I don't actually remember the author. I think it was a JAMA Internal Medicine sometime in the next past few months where as little as, I don't know, $10 or $20, they, they had like, you know, some, they were looking at, relation between prescribing and um, how much money based on the open payment system. And some models suggested you don't have to be making thousands of dollars to be conflicted, much less than that. Now, obviously, the paper could be criticized easily, but yet it's out there in a, in a major journal suggesting that you don't need to make thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to be conflicted. It could be much less that drives your prescribing. Do you think that's true or do you think... I, I'm not sure, but I'm not talking so much about the value of the money per se, as opposed or the quantity of the money, but basically what are the types of conflicts you want somebody to avoid. So let me give you an example. 
I, I'll give you my own personal example. I've tried not to take money from drug companies to a very extreme level, like trying to avoid any single company meetings, trying to never do advisory boards, never do you know, any consulting with any company. The problem is that I, what I've realized is that there are certain types of conflicts in courts which are impossible to avoid. So for example, I do a lot of clinical trials within Mayo where I'm not the lead investigator, but the company uh, has to hire a company to write the manuscript because the first author usually is not prompt in writing the paper or something. Or could it be a policy for the company that that's what it is. Policy of the company. So then they disclose so-and-so Dr. Rajkumar received $1,000 from me. And I'm like, no, I did not receive the money from you. Transfer of value. Um, But that's transfer of value. So the solution is now I have to say I'm getting money from Celgene or Takeda, which is not true. And it sends the wrong message to the listeners of my lectures or talks that, oh, he's getting money too, which doesn't serve any public good versus the other extreme where I say, I don't want to, par- I don't want to be an author in any of these papers. Which you can't which is- because you have to. Well, and I have turned down many, many papers, which is also the wrong thing because you did the research and then now you're not taking credit for it. But you do know that you agree that you have Vincent Rajkumar today has lo- the luxury of turning down these things because exactly. eventually, I mean, if you have somebody who's much junior than you, they, they can't turn this down. They want this. Exactly. And so there, that's why I feel like the disclosure statements that are usually done at NCI are much better than the disclosure statements which require to disclose everything that is immaterial, not material at all. Same thing with clinical trials. If you do a clinical trial, no institution in the US is going to do a clinical trial for free. All of the clinical trials that we have in oncology are funded by pharmaceutical companies. That means everybody who's doing a clinical trial is automatically conflicted. And that also doesn't help anyone because somebody would be a person who never takes money from pharma for talks, never takes any honorarium, never does any consulting, speakers bureau, never goes for their pharma lunches, dinners, whatnot. And yet, because they have, by virtue of having been the leader of a clinical trial, they're automatically conflicted. Okay, that doesn't help the public either because then they are going to put the person who's getting a lot of money in support for honoraria lectures with the person who's all that they've done is do a clinical trial in the same bucket because they cannot distinguish. You're going to disclose research support from Celgene. Somebody else will say receive funding for honoraria from Celgene. They both are the same. And that doesn't inform the public about who's conflicted and who's not. So I like the NCI, where the NCI basically in their disclosure says payments made for the actual cost of doing the clinical trial are not considered conflicts. So they want you to report only payments that are over and above the cost of the clinical trials, which means that if I am doing a clinical trial for a particular company, those payments are fee for service. It's not like they're giving you money to do any favors. That's the money that they have to give to get you. It's fee for service. But on the other hand, if they're giving me a $25,000 
grant for the lab. Now that becomes a conflict and that you have to report. I don't want to get into the details, but just the principle that we need to be careful in determining what's a conflict and what's not a conflict. Now the ICMJE, the medical journal editors, they have now put out for public comment a new disclosure form. And I think you should look at it. I will. That form now, what they've done is, and I'm not sure where I stand on this yet, I have to think about it, but they've changed it from conflict of interest disclosure to disclosure, okay. eliminating the word conflict. And now they want to know everything, everything that was paid to you or to your institution. If you look at that form, there is not a single person who's doing a study, a researcher, who will not have a zero disclosure. That then, I think, runs the risk of making the entire research community in the eyes of the public conflicted. And what purpose does that serve? Because the conflict of interest disclosure flashes before people's eyes for two seconds. All they're going to see is, oh, all the doctors are taking money. You said the public, you mentioned a couple of times the eyes of the public or let the end user, the patient or the family decide. What have you noticed? Have you noticed that patients and families care, number one, uh, about that? I mean, are we really blowing things up a proportion where patients who are ultimately the most important stakeholder really don't care? And if they care, are they able of interpreting the complexity of that? Can they understand, you know, that $25,000 grants Dr. Rajkumar's lab is really not in his pocket. It's really for the lab. I mean, can they really differentiate the granularity of things if we're leaving it up to them to interpret? Yes, and, and, and this is why I'm a little wary of disclose everything, even if it's completely unrelated and completely nonsensical. Just disclose everything so then. Because that is more like we cover ourselves Whatever I did, I've disclosed. Right, right. And wash it down. But patients and even physicians who are in the audience listening to me or you give a lecture are not going to have the time, energy, or patience to discriminate. This is a conflict. That's not a conflict. This must be a conflict. I shouldn't talk, listen to his interpretation of this because he's conflicted. They're going to just get one message. And that message would be, looks like everyone's conflicted. Yeah. And that doesn't help anyone, right? Because then patients are going to say, well, I haven't seen a doctor who's never had, who had nothing. I've heard a couple of comments sometimes from physicians saying that, you know, and from patients actually, that if you are, let's say, getting support from five companies and maybe you're on speakers bureau of another one, whatever it is, that's actually good because in their views, and I've heard that from some patients, you know what, you're actually valued by these big companies. They are allowing you to speak on their behalf, so you must be a good speaker, you're probably a good teacher, you're an educator, whatever it is. I've heard that actually from some patients' families and also from people in the healthcare industry that are not patients. Yes. I think we shouldn't lose sight of why we want conflicts of interest rules and disclosures. What we want to do is to make sure that 
relevant conflicts that will give the perception that whatever your recommendation is, whether to your patient or to your colleague in the form of an expert, is not uh, affected by some other reason other than the stated reason. And that's the whole purpose of the conflict of interest laws and the dis uh, rules and the disclosure of that is to make sure anything relevant they should know about to, know, to, to be sure that you wouldn't have allowed that to influence your judgment. We lose sight of that if we, if we go into this, like you said, like disclose everything, where some patients might say that this is, uh, this is a good thing. And some people would be saying like, oh my God, he's taking money. So you have both problems. And this is why I, uh, I posted on Twitter this recommendation, which I'd like your feedback on. It's very, very simple. There are some kinds of disclosures, there's some kinds of conflicts that physicians who are in practice or in, in an expert role should simply not have. And if they have it, then they should really recuse themselves from decisions involving that. And that would be direct ownership of stock or direct ownership of a company where they, they control. So if I own the company and I'm prescribing the drug, I should basically recuse myself. So there are some conflicts that you simply should not have. Any leadership roles in the company, any boards of the company, uh, being a paid director of the company, those kinds of conflicts, if you have, you should not be running the trial. You should not be writing the editorial or the guideline. You should not also be treating the patient uh, with your own company's drug or your, you know, the company that you're so closely allied with. So those are conflicts where disclosure is not enough. You better not have it if you're in that role. You'll recuse yourself. And um, this, is, this is really very, very important because you know, people, if you, uh, if you think about it, the, the, no one is preventing the CEO of the company from writing a research paper. And we've had many, if you look at many uh, randomized controlled trials, you will see that some of the authors are employees of the company. So even the New England Journal will allow you to write an original research paper. There are many original research papers written only by company employees. Those are all fine, but it's only in the areas where there's judgment involved, like a review article, editorial, opinion, treatment of an actual patient with a drug, enrolling a patient on a trial. Those things you should recuse yourself. Then there is the bucket where it'll be nice if people are not conflicted, but if you have conflicts, please disclose it. And these will be conflicts where companies are making payment to you, either directly personal payments for honoraria, advisory board, consulting, or companies are making research payments to your lab to get you protected time. Like they give you uh, $100,000 in grants above and beyond what's needed for the trial. Uh, then, then you're like, you know, beholden to that company. So you, you have to disclose all of those conflicts. But I really created a third category of types of uh, payments where we should not be considering them conflicts. Because if we do, then you won't have a non-conflicted oncologist or a non-conflicted clinic uh, trialist or leader. And that would be, like I said, 
transfer of value payments because somebody used a medical writer. The only way to avoid those payments is to not be an author on any paper. And it doesn't help if every author is conflicted. Of uh, You won't have guidelines, you won't have bias, unbiased opinions. And the second one would be payments where if, say, Ash is running a CME meeting, if you take ASCO is running a CME meeting, well, that meeting is funded by pharmaceutical companies as well. <laughs> you st I was just going to say that, actually. <laughs> and, and so payments where multiple companies have pooled money and, the, and, and a, and a nonprofit or a, or a CME company like, you know, what uh, Neil Love does or something like that organizes them. It's like a vehicle. It's a vehicle in and, the middle. Yeah. Exactly where Medscape is going to pick the people who are speaking and Medscape is moderating the content and making sure that it's impartial. Uh, that's just like ASCO or ASH would do it or a nonprofit organization would do it. If a physician is reimbursed for that, that's not payment from a company. The, pay, the, right. neither the, the company is not disclosing it to open payments. Neither, neither is the company involved in providing the dollars to the to the person involved. So I think those kind of payments, I, I have more detail in that particular tweet I sent, but I just want us to distinguish between conflicts that people should generally not have and disclosure alone is not enough. Conflicts that are best avoided, but if it's there, please disclose it so that the reader or the reviewer can make their own assessment whether it's worth it. And payments which should not be considered conflicts like the transfer of value payments a multi-company CME meeting run by Ash or ASCO or Medscape, as well as payments that are done just to run the trial, the actual cost of running the trial, which neither the FDA nor the NCI considers as a conflict. And they, they basically tell you not to disclose it. I'll send you those forms by email and you'll see, they'll say, have you received payments over and above the cost of the trial? Only then you'll check yes. Otherwise you'll say no conflicts. And that's an important thing also to exclude because you don't want a situation where everybody is considered conflicted. So, but in the middle bucket that you had, I think the first bucket is very clear in my mind. I, I you know, you're CEO of a company, you, you just can't be discussing prescribing the drug that your company made. I think that's very, very clear. The two other buckets, maybe we can spend a little bit of time on them because the, the middle one where there's a conflict, you just have to disclose. Yes. I've heard the term that you can you have to disclose if you're making over $10,000 per company per year. I heard that and maybe I'm wrong, but I did hear that. Is there something magical about the $10,000 number or did I just misunderstand? Is it like let's say you do an advisory board for that company and you get paid $2,000. That you have to disclose or you think should be a minimum payment per year that you have to make in order for you to disclose? for the middle bucket. So I'll come to the significant conflicts of interest and that doesn't have to be 10,000. And it goes back in time, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, I'm forgetting now, the New England Journal of Medicine had an editorial. And it's worthwhile tracing the history because even the journal might have forgotten that. At the time the editorial said, you know, so far we have, for original research, we don't mind people who have conflicts because it's original research, people can interpret the actual numbers. But for editorials and reviews, because they carry such weight and their opinions, like if you write an editorial saying like, this is the best treatment or this is, yes, I would agree with this or, or a review article like that, because those carry such stature, the journal always had a policy 
that authors of editorials and reviews should have no conflicts of interest, zero. The editorial 15 years ago said that, unfortunately, we are finding out that we are not able to find authors <laughs> with that policy because everyone has a conflict of $1,000 here. They gave a lecture somewhere. So ultimately, you'll have experts who have never lectured, never traveled out of their home, never really been experts, right. write these articles. And they said that's not good for the medical field either. And so the journal said, we will change our policy so that 10,000 per company per year, we will consider that de minimis. I see. And that if you have received less than that, you will be allowed, they'll still evaluate your forms, but you will be allowed to author editorials and reviews. I see. Okay, okay. so if you make more than 10,000. More than 10,000 per, per, per company per year, they don't want you to write editorials and guidelines and reviews, but you but can that still was write an your arbitrary, arbitrary number chosen, right? It was an arbitrary that, number that is chosen. Yeah, I mean, that's because they. 9,000 and conflicted and 11,000 not conflicted. So I have, for example, right now with me, the form that the NCI uses. And if you look at that form that says, uh, the number there they have is 25,000. Okay. What they're saying is, have you received payments outside of the cost of the conducting the clinical trial? Because that could run in the hundreds of thousands for every trial. Right. Outside of that, extra, in addition to that, have you received payments, payments in this nature in excess of 25,000 or ongoing consultation on a area must be disclosed. So, People can argue about what that number should be, whether it should be 5,000, 10,000, 25,000. But we set an arbitrary number to make sure that, again, to the same point, the only people without conflict will be people who have never traveled or never done a trial or never actually done research. But I think you can also say that in terms of the, in terms of the, um, not just the, the, the numbers, I mean, the 20, I mean, 25,000 is, Obviously, it seems excessive to me versus yeah. ten thousand. But 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 what's interesting? How accurate are we really in capturing the cost of conducting clinical trial? I mean, I say that because it's all in the eyes of the beholder. I mean, you can always say I'm going to justify me going to that meeting that is discussing the disease. It just happens to be in Hawaii, and I think it's going to help me understand what's happening there which is part of the cost of that trial. I mean, I guess, is it really that accurate calculating the cost of the trial? Yes, it, it is actually quite accurate because the way it is, is the, the cost of the clinical trial budget has to be itemized. Itemized appropriately for per patient, how much cost is for the patients, these tests, how much, how much cost is for the study coordinator, how much cost for the investigator. Everything is itemized and there is a budget arrived. The companies are legally, uh, they will run afoul of laws if, for example, they, they reimburse Mayo Clinic far more than, say, some other institution per patient cost because th that would be almost like money laundering. And so the companies have to be very careful into making sure that the budget is reasonable for the, depending on which city the, the institution is located in and all that. And the costs are very, very carefully 
uh, you, you have a, a, the budgeting alone takes a long time for them to verify which test is actually paid by Medicare, which test is not paid by uh, insurance, and which test is standard of care, which test is not. And everything is line item. And if you, you cannot ask for 25% time when you're going to enroll two patients, everything is proportional and itemized and uniform so that that's a that's the payment for service it'll be like you know you do this trial for me i have to give you this much money because there's exchange no transfer of value got it got it okay and that budget is set now but if that budget has a supplemental budget with 25000 for lab studies or 100000 for lab studies that has to be disclosed according to the nci anything more than 25000 has to be disclosed. Or if you have an honoraria for attending some meetings, like you said, Hawaii, or you know, they want you to come for like five investigators meetings and they're going to be giving you 50,000 for that in that year. Well, then that's a conflict. Right. That's not counted as clinical trial costs. The third bucket that you mentioned that is the one where you have like a, let's say a Medscape or some other like ASH, ASCO running thing and you are getting paid essentially by ASH or by ASCO or by the third party, does it matter at the end? I mean, isn't that uh, a way I would say kind of more, I don't want to, I mean, playing the system is a little bit too strong of a word, but does it matter who's paying you if you know, if you know that this company is funding that program, but instead of, instead of them paying you directly, they have ASCO pay you, isn't it the same? You just had this through a third yeah. party? Yeah, it is the same. That's why a program that is sponsored by one company, whether it's ASCO, ASH, a nonprofit, it's, it's still like money coming from that one company. And that's why generally the rule is four or more companies. I so that you would say that when there are, you know, if, if it's myeloma and the myeloma uh, meeting is supported by, say, Celgene, Takeda, Sanofi and Janssen, the four big players, then the person and the, and the money is coming from ASCO or Medscape. It's very unlikely that I can just find out even who gave what to, I mean, ah. it's not like that. So it has to be, the Mayo rule is four or more companies. That's so, a good point. The multi-sponsored is a good point. Multi-sponsored because then it becomes like going to ASH. I mean, if you go to ASH, that meat subsidized by the tremendous amount of uh, advertisement space that's- Oh yeah. That oh, meeting hall. Yeah. The very act of attending ASH itself is a subsidized. Your payment of that dollars doesn't take care of the cost. Otherwise, they won't have these multiple sponsors coming in, bring up their exhibits out there. So, but but the fact that a number of people given that means that you're not going to say that I got money from Selchin as a transfer of value for going to ASH or for giving a talk at ASH or whatnot. What do, what do we do moving do we forward, do we do? Vincent, with the conflict of interest? I think kind of all over the place. I, I like the way you described the, the differentiation between these three buckets. Do you feel that uh, this is ready for prime time by the medical community, uh, your proposal for the conflict of interest? Are you planning on taking this further? You know, w what's, your, what's your next step to try to move this proposal forward, uh, if any? So I think we should try to do something. Uh, number one, I think we should take a look at what the ICMJE is doing. 
and see if that is way going forward. That has the pro of multiple lords are agreeing and they are agreeing in the sense that you disclose everything, everything, whether it's related, unrelated to the topic, whether it's a government grant, a nonprofit grant, you disclose everything, whether it's paid to you, to your institution, and then they decide whether or not your conflict, every activity asset appears, as well as they put this whole disclosure so anybody who's reading it can see what are all the conflicts. It serves the purpose of total disclosure. What it misses the mark on is that the problem that everyone will look afflicted and no one has the time to dissect out every interest disclosure uh, and decide who's conflicted and who's not. They're going to just basically resign. It looks like everyone has some disclosure or the other. And, and, and then the problem is that people with real conflicts will get away. The people who shouldn't be writing these guidelines, the people with real conflicts who the public should know like, okay, so-and-so is conflicted will get away because, because you've muddied the water and made everybody conflicted. Number two, the other disadvantage is that it does go in with trust in the sense that there's no verification of the disclosure with any database to make sure that the people who are disclosing are doing it truthfully. The, so that's the first thing. I think we should examine that and see if that's, that's why pursuing or not. The second option is some of us who are interested in this topic can form like an ad hoc group and come out with a white paper on this is what the definition of conflict of interest is. These are the types of conflicts that we reach. These are the types of conflicts we should disclose. This is what we think should be minimus to allow people to decide whether or not be doing opinion editorial type papers. These are the types of conflicts that don't need to be disclosed. This is how we verify disclosures, something like that. Third option is apparently societies like ASCO are taking on the job of something like this, have a common repository. In fact, even the ICMJE said they will not only accept their own disclosure form, apparently there are these public websites where you can disclose everything and they'll use the website link in lieu of your disclosure. So you just go to log on to it and disclose your life and then they'll just automatically <laughs> transfer. Well, I think we could talk about this for a long time, but uh, we are getting close. We've been very generous with our time, with your time, and um, I'll be more than happy to help in the writing of this uh, topic. It's a, it's a very interesting topic, and I think it will be fun to, uh, to get a group of us, like you said, who are interested in the, in the topic and get something out and uh, you know, put it out there, get people to critique it, to like it or not like it, and get uh, feedback. I, I, I will be on board for that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be fun to do and, and just you learn from the, the process itself. Maybe I am naive and I don't realize all the other problems that, the, that are out there in the world that require disclosure. Uh, maybe that, you know, I can change my mind too. And by the way, before I let you go and you're going to have the final say, that's how we do it in this podcast. Always the guests will have the final say is physician assistants, pharmacists, 
nurse practitioners, they don't have to disclose anything, although they could be influential also in prescribing and managing patients, right? There's no, you don't have to disclose anything if you're a physician assistant to make money. For the purposes of uh, journal articles, for the purposes of means, all authors, whether regardless of their position, should, should disclose. But I think open payments probably doesn't open. capture You're right. that physician assistants and yes, but when they disclose self-disclosure, they have to do that. Yeah, that's what I meant for the open payments. Vincent, you've been very generous with your time and I think somehow I apologize for the listeners. The uh, sound yeah. is trying to cut off. I'm not really sure what happened here, but uh, any last comments, final thoughts before we let you go? First of all, I have to thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to say whatever I wanted to say and uh, having such a discussion on this topic. Uh, secondly, I also want to congratulate you for all of the interesting topics you're doing on your podcast, which I can see from your Twitter feed. Uh, interesting stuff, things that not too many people are thinking about not just like diet management of a disease kind of thing. So I want to congratulate you on that. And especially fine would be for taking on such an important topic. I mean, you could have just blown this off because this thing and, it, but you took, you've taken science to get to the bottom of this, uh, of this. Why are people, why should people be concerned about conflicts of interest? What should we do about it? What is the right thing to do? Things that we can do cosmetically that make it look like everything is good, but you really want to get to the bottom and you want to get to the, what is the right thing and the right way to approach it. And that's why you're having so many questions on this topic. So I want to congratulate you for that as well. So I'm very, very thankful for me on this uh, podcast and I'm looking forward to doing more with you, Chai. Oh, we will. We will for sure. Thank you so much, Vincent. Thank you. Take care. Thanks everyone for listening. This is really an important episode that we discussed an important topic. It's actually the last episode, believe it or not, that will air before the US presidential election in 2020. So um, I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you what you think by sending me a direct message on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or by sending me an email to cnabhan1968 at gmail.com or chadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Please let me know how we are doing and uh, what else we can do really to improve on this podcast and to continue meeting your expectations and earning your trust. Before I let you go, I would like to leave you with a saying from Winston Churchill. The whole history of the world is summed up in the fact that when nations are strong, they are not always just. And when they wish to be just, they are no longer strong. Until next time, take care of yourselves. <laughs>